Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Welcome to the Oxygen Starved Podcast, where we bring you adventures, books, and conversations, your ABCs from 11,000 feet. I'm Stacy. I'm Christopher. And with us, as always, is producer Doug. Good, good morning, good, Doug. Good morning, Doug. How are you today? Good. Good. So we're going to lead off this episode of the podcast with our latest adventure that took us to the Lee Vining Library. Yay! I always like a little plug for libraries, right? I know you do. That's (laughs) why I threw that. I had to throw the location of where we went in there. Um, But yeah, we we went up there uh, to see producer Doug perform a one-man play. Yeah, so we, uh, for the our listeners who may not be familiar with the area, Levining is a community on the shores of Mono Lake, yep. uh, and there are two communities up there, Mono City and Levining, mm-hmm. and there's a few hundred people who live in each. Levining has the library, and their friends group was gracious enough to open the library on a Sunday and yep. host... Um, a reading of a one-person play. Right, called Every Brilliant Thing. And Doug, you did an amazing job. Thank you. It was Doug. Doug did this. Doug Doug did this, yes. It was I. I don't know which. And (laughs) there was a a lovely group of people. It was a nice turnout. It's a small library, so it was packed. Right, right, right. But I love it. Free and open to anyone. It was great. It was great. Doug, do you want to share with our listeners a little bit about the play and how you decided to take this on? Well, the play is an interesting beast. It's uh, I, I, I consider it pretty uplifting. Mm-hmm. However, the, the beyond the fact that it's uplifting, the topic matter is uh, depression mm-hmm. and suicide. Uh, uh, one of the the narrator's uh, mother actually is suicidal, and it's it's kind of a consideration of how he as a begins to think about ways to keep her from from taking her life. She he wants to convince her that it's it's appropriate and quite thrilling to stay, and he comes up with a list of things that uh, that all make life worthwhile. Um, and it's, it was written in part by uh, a stand-up comedian in in, uh, in Britain, right? A regular playwright yeah. in Britain, but he kind of put a stand-up comedian to work. So it's kind of neat. It's a lilting, uh, bright kind of play, uh, despite the topic matter. Mm-hmm. Um, I came upon it because I'm always looking for one-man plays. Um, <laughs> I basically have a Google search that kind of goes and pulls in everything, and uh, soon uh, after this. Uh, after this play uh, made it to uh, kind of a, a real public in in London, uh, uh, it became became a part of the the search, and so that's when I discovered it, read it, and decided at some point I wanted to do something with it. So it was originally published in 2013. Was when it was first produced in London. Right. Yeah, it had been workshopped in the uh, in the outer shires and uh, a variety of places before it made it to London. Before it kind of made it in, in that's final that final uh, publishable form. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I believe it was about two thirteen two thousand thirteen. It really got its it's got got its feet on it. And one thing that was really unique about it, going to see this but not knowing what to expect, mm-hmm. is this is an audience participation production. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
it's it, it is not a, a play that lets people just sit there idly uh, watching and soaking things up. Um, <laughs> it's not like watching a screen. It is like being a part of a story, uh, and I kind of like that idea. I'm I'm an advocate of uh, of live performance generally because it involves people and and an actual real life exchange of energy and communication between people. Uh, and I think that's something that is kind of uh, in short order uh, of recent late of recent time uh, mm-hmm. of recent period. Yeah, it was it was very interesting. And you didn't. It wasn't just like you had to read a line that you were given. You, I mean, as as one of the people that had to participate. Yeah, I had to think on my feet a little improv. bit. I had to improvise. Yes. Yeah. I, I, it was quite out of my element. Yeah, well, as you guys saw, um, I, I think in performance, this thing lends itself to taking off in a variety of directions because it does rely on uh, characters, or rather uh, spectators, to take on an improvis- mm-hmm. improvisatory role. Uh, and I imagine, especially with the stand-up comedian at the helm, that it became pretty interesting at mm-hmm. points uh, in earlier productions of it. So really, what, so let's let's clarify Stacy's improv. We all were given some kind of um, participation, and that was kind of unexpected and fun, especially right. in that kind of intimate setting where you didn't know everyone. It kind of brought us all together yeah. um, and made us focus. You, I think, had the most involved, where you you had to create a sock pu- pu- puppet, right? Yes, I actually had to take my shoe and sock off and put my <laughs> sock on my hand and make a little sock puppet that had to interact with... The Produ- with yeah. the narrator, <laughs> several, a couple of, a couple t- of different times. times. What was your sock so. puppet's name again? Do you remember? Louis. Louis, that's right. Louis, <laughs> yes. Louis the Louis dog. The, Louis the dog. Who made yes. it onto the list, by the way, of every brilliant thing. Uh, Louis that's the dog. awesome. Yes. So, so uh, you know, listeners, you always wear clean socks when you go to the theater. Yeah. You never yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I really enjoyed about it is just such a, a quintessential, wonderful small town experience where community members were showing up to partake in something creative. Doug, your partner, Sylvia, um, uh, not only assisted with the production, she and her daughter helped, you know, bake stuff to eat, yeah. goodies to eat mm-hmm. afterwards yes. and create, you know, punch and beverage. And, and it was just kind of like this wonderful little way you could spend a couple hours on a Sunday afternoon in the Eastern Sierra. It was it, even, it was super fun. And even my, my 14 year old, joined me and she didn't know what to expect either. Yeah, she was and a sport. She she really got so much out of it and was really happy that she got to participate in this and, yeah. and go and said, Mom, you know, this is a really this is a good thing. You know, high school students should hear this play and Yeah. So we're working on and got to see your parents, that. which was nice. Yeah, to Yeah, it was them. lovely to meet your parents. Yeah. That was yeah. awesome. They ventured up. Thankfully, we didn't have a snowstorm going. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but um, yeah, I just want to encourage our listeners who um, both live and visit the Eastern Sierra. Not everything involves a hike. Some things right. you can or skiing or skiing or fishing. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of free stuff that mm-hmm. any is open to anyone. Right. And if you just kind of slow down as you're driving through some of the towns, you know, there's libraries and yep. seven of them, um, and other venues as well where things are happening. So just kind of like pay attention to the bulletin boards and what have you, right. and um, these little things will come to life. I thought it was a great afternoon. It, it was a it was a great afternoon, Doug. You were amazing. Yes. And a great topic. And if you're listeners, if you're interested, we'll put a, a link to the play on, mm-hmm. in our show notes as well as 
um, a link to an HBO special all about the the um, original production, um, production of, of every brilliant thing. Right. But thanks so much for doing that, Doug. Yeah, it was great. My pleasure. Definitely my pleasure. I was happy to get some of my drama things going again. Yeah. Awesome. All right, listeners, take a deep breath. We'll be right back. Oxygen Starved Podcast would like to say thank you to Sierra Geotechnical Services, Inc. for their generous sponsorship of this podcast. You can find a link to their website on the Oxygen Starved website. Welcome back, listeners. We're at the B section, the book section of Yay. our podcast. And this time we decided, you know, Oscars were a couple of weeks ago. This time we decided to talk a little bit about books and movies and adaptations, yes. right? It seems like every movie that comes out now is an adaptation of a book. Right. Or lots of them. Lots of them are. And is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I don't know. I mean, it's always a great conversation. Did you like the movie better than the book? Did you like the book uh, better than the movie? Always. Yeah. I, I think I always say, no, I like the book. I mean, I think there are very rare occasions where I like the movie better. I don't think there have been any where I like the movie better, but maybe <laughs> just the same as the book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, um, yeah, so that's what we're going to talk about. We each brought in a couple of pics of, mm-hmm. of books to movies that um, we would recommend. And uh, one of the things that I will say I struggled with with this, and you'll, as you know, Stacey, because we chatted about it, yes. is I thought it would be kind of hard to come up with ones that I really liked. But in a matter of hours, I had dozens and dozens all written down on a pad of paper, and I thought, how am I going to get down to just two I kind of had the same experience as you did, you know, like once I start first, I was like, how am I going to come up with any? Mm -hmm. And then once I started thinking about it, like, because it's, it's true. It's like every book is becoming a movie. Yeah. And actually there's more out there than you think. And we were just talking, there are many authors out there of books who do screenwriting on the side, yes, which is a long history of that. Um, So I actually had to take some time and decide how am I going to get two off of this long list. So I kind of came up with the Christopher criteria for myself for this particular podcast. So the two that I'm going to mention aren't aren't my favorite children, but I did kind of have to say like, you know, I wanted to avoid the obvious. So Mm -hmm. I didn't pick Harry Potter. I didn't pick Lord of the Rings or Gone with the Wind or any of those. I decided it had to be a literary book. So I love the Jason Bourne movies, but those aren't, those are kind of genre thriller mm-hmm. novels. Um, it must be a movie and not a miniseries. So with streaming, there's a lot of miniseries yes. coming out based right. on books, yeah, which is great. Um, and it must have had a theatrical release in a movie theater, meaning it had to have a cinematic quality when mm-hmm. it was adapted for the big screen and of course had to be well acted well casted in my mind and make me want to revisit the book so Mm -hmm. you know those kinds of movies where you go in you see it and on the way out of the theater you're like maybe I should read that again yeah you know kind of just have that little thought Um, I did think a lot about uh, some of the masters of the genre if you will some of my favorite directors Hitchcock based Mm -hmm. a lot of his movies on books David Lean, who did Dr. Zhivago, mm-hmm. Lawrence of Arabia, Passage to India, all based on really wonderful, sweeping books of their own. Big, big, thick books. Big, thick books yeah. that led to big, wide well, movies yes. <laughs> with really great music behind them. And, of course, Francis Ford Coppola. Right. We can't, um, you know, not oh, mention the Godfather absolutely. movies or Apocalypse Now. Again, I avoided those, though, because they're really big. Yeah. So here's the two books that... 
I, I'll mention they're not of those genres. The first one is called The English Patient, the book uh, by Michael Ondaatje. It is the only book to win the prestigious British Booker Award twice. The Booker wow. Award in in the UK is like their big book award every year. And it's been around for a little over 50 years. The book came out in 1992. It won the award that year. And then it won the award again um, in 19 or in 2018 when they did a kind of a celebration of the Booker Award and went to all their past winners and picked the best of the past winners. Wow. So and it was the best. It was the best of the best. So Michael Ondaatje um, is a pretty amazing author, a really great, great writer. Hits my you know notes that I like in a book. Very atmospheric, mm-hmm. a lot of character driven stuff. So that's the book. The movie came out a couple of years after the book came out in the okay. '90s. The English Patient, directed by Anthony Minghella, and all kinds of awards and oh, accolades, if totally, I remember correctly. Totally nominated for twelve Oscars, won nine. Wow. Kind of swept the Oscars that year. It was kind of a joke that they other you know Oscar nominees were making <laughs> that. You know, the English patient stealing everything. Some of you may remember the movie if you mm-hmm. saw it. it, it Juliet Binoche won mm-hmm. an Oscar. It had Ray Fiennes as the lead character. You'll recognize him if you saw Schindler's List. Willem Dafoe played a great character. He is out now in the movie called The Lighthouse, but uh, this was um, earlier in his career. Those of you who are fr- uh, fans of the TV series Lost a few years back, Naveem Andrews, uh, one of his early movie roles was in The English Patient. And then one of my favorite, um, not real character actresses, but British actress Kristen Scott Thomas played a key yeah. role in this book. The, the uh, storyline involves... Uh, characters coming together and kind of it's World War II Mm -hmm. characters coming together in a bombed out Italian palazzo in the country um, as the Americans are kind of and the Brits and everyone are kind of invading Italy to go up into Germany Um, and Juliet Binoche's character the the Hannah character from the book is a nurse Nurse, taking care of the patient the English patient who has been burned beyond recognition um and speaks with an English accent. You mm-hmm. never really never, see him. You never right? really see him in the book. Um, Willem Dafoe kind of plays a kind of a spy character who's uh, had a run in with the Germans and um, lost some fingers. The, uh, uh, that's the Caravaggio character. I'm talking in frame of the movie and right. not the book. Um, there's a, a, a Sikh bomb disposal sapper. So Sikh is an Indian, <laughs> right. um, S-I-K-H, mm-hmm. um, character named Kip. And he's there to kind of defuse bombs in the mm-hmm. area because the Germans are retreating. And so they think that this ruined house is got a bunch of booby traps in it. And there's a kind of a, a soft love story that kind of comes together with mm-hmm. him and the nurse Hannah. And then um, the English patient himself uh, turns out to be Hungarian. He's a... So he's not even English. He's not even English. Um, And his whole backstory really drives the narrative of the book and the movie. Okay. Um, He was an archaeologist in Egypt, and he had an affair with a good friend's wife. Um, you know, and they were doing, you know, excavation in caves and other places in Egypt and North Africa. And then when the war came, it kind of, you know, messed everything up. He got captured and the woman he has an affair with dies. I mean, this I'm kind of giving stuff away, but the book's been out a while. So, yeah. So how does the, this seems like a sweeping 
book. It is a sweeping book. How does the book hold up against the movie or, or vice versa? So I wrote in my notes that I think the movie has kind of a David Lean quality to mm-hmm. it. It has a very epic um, quality and both in terms of cinematography and, and the landscape, Northern Africa and, and Italy, it, the, it's, it's very kind of almost epic in a way. He treats the, the individual stories and how they come together very, very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of really kind of understand what motivates each character and kind of the, the episodes of grief and guilt and love and potential that comes out of it. Um, it's really well acted. The, uh, if I remember correctly, the really only major difference between the book and the movie for this one is kind of how it ends. In the book, Hannah and Kip, the the Sikh bomb mm-hmm. ex- disposal expert, kind of go their separate ways. Mm. Um, and uh, in the movie, there's kind of maybe a thought that they're not maybe completely not. giving up on each other, which is kind of an interesting thing. Um, Ray Fiennes does a great job of lying in bed with burn scars <laughs> on his face, but making that character super, super um, riveting and compelling in what he does. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I think the the big thing for me is uh, I read the book. I was amazed by the book. I was a much younger person there. I was mm-hmm. in grad school living in Seattle. When the movie came out, I went to a matinee to see the movie <laughs> by myself. I don't remember why I was by myself. But at the end of the movie, as the credits were rolling, all you kind of heard was sniffling around the theater, oh, right? So yeah. it was really like a three-hanky book that turned right. into a three-hanky movie. And I will admit I was sniffling myself. Yeah. Um, but that's The English Patient okay. by Michael Ondaatje. I do encourage people to start with a book. Yeah, um, okay. And then you'll appreciate the movie better. It's it's really amazing. The second choice is very different Okay. from my book to movie. So I chose a book for a younger person. And hopefully many of our listeners will recognize it. It's called The Invention of Hugo Cabret by Brian Selznick. Yep. Came out a little over a decade ago. And the unique thing about this, Brian Selznick's a great youth author. Mm -hmm. Um, And he uh, alternates story and picture. So the book itself is like 500 pages long, which is totally unique for a kid's book, right? And and Probably overwhelming for a young person. (laughs) But engrossing. So he does it as one page of text, one page of picture, one page of text, one page of picture. And in fact, because there's so much illustration in this book, he actually won the American Library Association's Caldecott Medal for this book. Which is an illustrator's award. It is. It's normally given to picture books, you know, know, for young people. Um, So this was unique uh, in that, but totally deserving. It's a great, great story and it talks about a young boy named Hugo Mm -hmm. Um, and as often happens in these kinds of stories the child is for whatever reason on their own so his he was very attached to his father his widowed father who worked as a as in a museum Mm -hmm. Um, and in this museum there were these uh, they found an automata automaton which is kind of like a mechanical device mm-hmm. and, and something that is real. You can look these things up. They've been around for centuries and, and people, they were kind of like clock making kind of devices that could be turned into people or animals and you would wind them up and they would do something. something. Mm-hmm. And so, um, his father dies in a fire and he's kind of orphaned, sent to live with his uncle who maintains clocks in a train station. And, um, he, 
rescues the automaton from the museum and wants to continue trying to fix it up because it's an automaton of a man writing a message on a tablet. Right. And he is convinced in his 11-year-old mind that if he can get it going, it'll be it'll write a message from his dead father. Right. And so, um, you know, he he meets a young girl in the in the train station, and together, every all the hijinks ensue, mm-hmm. and um, they end up getting the thing working. And what turns out is that it draws the uh, a story of a rocket ship shooting to the moon and hitting the moon in the eye. Now, I should mention this is set in the early 20th century mm-hmm. in France, right. and what some of you may recognize is that that's actually a film from the early 20th century from a French filmmaker named Georges Méliès. And in fact, the book turns out to have a connection with Georges Méliès right. and kind of celebrate early cinematography, which is what mm-hmm. Brian Selzik was doing. So Martin Scorsese, amazing filmmaker. Yes. Got the Irishman out right now, yep. right? A little departure from his normal <laughs> godfather work. Yeah. He saw this, and of course he loves filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And he loves the history of it and the power of it and really good art. And so he turned it into a movie called Hugo. That I came love out. This movie. We both love this movie, yes, right? I it did. came out in 2011. Mm-hmm. It was another one that kind of like dominated the Oscars that mm-hmm. year. It was nominated for 11. It won six. Um, he really stays true to the story, but mm-hmm. he kind of brings out that that visual element in a very creative and, and engaging way. I actually saw this movie in 3D. <laughs> it was. It was a movie yeah. that was. It was made one of the first. 3D. One of the first. You know, when 3D was having its you know, resurgence. Mm-hmm. This was uh, one of the first, I think. And he's a master, you know, Scorsese is a master of the subtle touch, mm-hmm. right? You don't do three decades, four decades of mob movies without being able to inject subtlety, humor, right. and wonder into this the film itself. And he does that yeah. with this book. And you really are just, you're amazed at the, the artistic and cinema. Photography mm-hmm. of the yes. movie. It really it lends be- itself to it. It was beautifully filmed. Yeah. And then he brings out that story and that kind of love letter to early filmmakers mm-hmm. that this that it is at the root of the book itself. Yeah. So those are my two book good picks. Two movie picks. What did you Very pick, Stace? Good picks. My picks are a little, I think, more generic. I don't know. Don't but, say generic. Um, well, my the first the first one that I picked was The Devil Wears Prada. I loved both that I book lo- and that movie. And, you know, this was one of the the few times I saw the movie before I read the book. Did it cause uh, you to read the book? It kind of did, yeah. actually. Yeah. And so, um, of course, The Devil Wears Prada is written by Lauren Weisberger. It was published in 2003. Mm-hmm. The movie came out in 2006. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I saw it. I went by myself. <laughs> I just had an op- opportunity to go to the movies by myself. So, um, and, and Anne Hathaway and Meryl Streep right. play the two um, main characters. Meryl Streep uh, won a Golden Globe for this role mm-hmm. as Miranda Priestly. And she was also nominated for an Academy Award. Of course. Um, because, of course. She's, she's Meryl, Meryl Streep. She yes. always gets nominated, Absolutely. right? Isn't that a rule somewhere? And I think it is. But, you know, she did... She, you totally forgot she mm-hmm. was... Meryl Streep in this in yeah. this role, she was amazing. And then Emily Blunt and Stanley Tucci, who are Great pretty actors. famous actors, were also featured in the movie. Um, the book, interestingly enough, when it was published, came out to mixed 
mm-hmm. reviews. It wasn't that mm-hmm. well received, and there was a little bit of controversy. We were talking about this before um, because Lauren Weisberger had been an assistant to Anna Winter, who is the editor-in-chief of Vogue, American Vogue, and there that was... A real character herself, right? Absolutely. She's iconic. She yes. always dresses the same way, has With kind of a short haircut. Short haircut, big, wears big, huge sunglasses yeah. that cover almost her whole entire face. Yeah. But um, there, there was some um, speculation that the Miranda Priestley character was based on Anna Winter, mm-hmm. and she's kind of a witchy character. Oh, she's Disney villain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. And she she even kind of has that hair like Cruella <laughs> DeVille, you know, like this gray hair with this one black yep. streak in it. But anyways, um, there were people, others who had worked for Anna Winter, who kind of jumped out in her defense saying, oh, you know, she, it, mm-hmm. it wasn't like that. And I learned so much from her. And she was, yeah. you know, how could Lauren Weisberger, you know, be so uh, ungrateful for the opportunity right. that she had, blah, blah, blah. Well, Weisberger never confirmed, right. yes, anything about whether, you know, Miranda Priestley is... Anna Winter. And, Wisely. She's avoiding yes. the liable suit, probably. Yeah, probably, and, you know, <laughs> helped with uh, the money, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, helped with book sales. Um, so, but the film was very successful. It brought in over $300 million worldwide. And, you know, like I said, there were, um, you know, great performances. And I love the movie. It's a delicious movie. And and it's also one that when it comes on TV, it's fun to kind of pause there and just go grab some popcorn. Well, I've seen it. My family will tell you, I've seen it so many times I could recite it. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) That'll be the next one at (laughs) Levining Library. You'll come and do it. I'll come and be all the characters. Um, There were some differences in the book and the Mm -hmm. movie. Um, The book was, was much longer. The characters, of course, were more fleshed out. Uh, the biggest difference, I think, was the the character of Lily in the book, uh, who's Andy's roommate from college. Um, Lily's a much more fleshed out character in the book yeah. and has a much greater role than she did in the movie where she's just kind of the judgy best friend. Yeah. So, um, you know, we talked about this too, like, you know, books take hours to read, but movies are a 90 to two hour experience. So how you get the book fitting into a movie is a real indication of, of how well that adaptation is going. Absolutely. And I, it's a, you know, screenplay writers do who adapt books. They, some of them just do an amazing, amazing job and it's not easy. I don't think it's easy work to do. The other book that I chose, book to movie that I chose, was Wild by Cheryl Strayed. I think it's pronounced Strayed, mm-hmm. um, which became a movie that was um, produced and starred in by uh, Reese Witherspoon. So Wild was published in 2012. The film was released in 2014. Right. Both to rave Reviews. Absolutely. Um, and Wild was actually the first selection in Oprah's book club 2.0 when she <laughs> restarted her book club again. This was her first choice, which 
obviously helped book sales mm-hmm. quite a lot. Um, the, the book describes her 1,100-mile uh, hike of the Pacific Crest Trail that uh, Cheryl Strayed took in 1995. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she turned it into a, a memoir and um a compelling memoir very very much so and this one i read the book before i saw the, mm-hmm. this saw the movie and um the movie i think does an amazing job of capturing all the the themes of the book you know the the most salient pieces of the of the book because she wasn't having a really easy time of it and this this hike is the, correct is a cathartic Cathart- thing yes. for and a kind of a quest and a challenge yes yeah, so the she had never been on a hike of any length before <laughs> setting out on well, this. let's just go hike the pct yeah i'm just gonna go do this <laughs> and she actually had to travel from minnesota where she was to the mojave desert mm-hmm. where she started mm-hmm. in, in california where she started her hike and it it was. It was about self-discovery for her and the, bringing about the resolution of the grief over her mother's death. Right. And that, you know, that was one of the main themes in both the, the book and the movie was mm-hmm. how she was processing and recovering from her mother who died at a very young age. Yeah. Um, uh, to, you know, of cancer. And so... Um, yeah, the book does a really good. The movie does a really good job of capturing some of the iconic scenes from mm-hmm. the the book, where she's you know one of which is when she's trying to put on this backpack and it's like this hundred pound <laughs> backpack, um, and I'll I'll never forget the way the scene was described in the book, but in the movie, Reese Witherspoon's in this hotel room and she falls over and she's got this pack <laughs> on and she can't get up. It was it was done really, really well. Um, you know, she buys boots, hiking boots that are too small on her that result in Oof. losing her toenails. Eventually, she even loses one of the boots, falls down into the, <laughs> the cavern and she has to duct tape uh, flip-flops to her feet until she can get a new pair of boots. And then, of course, the most um, iconic part, you know, anybody that grew up in the 90s uh, was a fan of Snapple. And <laughs> Cheryl Strayed was no exception. And her she always goes into these little off-trail stores and has... Snapple or, mm. or has Snapple sent to her. And I mean, <laughs> being a person in my 20s and the 90s, what, you know, that's yeah. such a part of growing up back then. But, um, and Reese did a good job. Reese did a great job. She all, I mean, I think all the performances were, were praised, you know, in the movie by critics. Laura Dern actually played mm. her mother, which right. is really weird because Laura Dern's only like 10 years older than Reese Witherspoon, right. but they both carried it. They pulled off their roles. So, you know, Reese Witherspoon, we should point out, she has her own book club. She has a production company mm-hmm. that specializes in taking books and turning them into movies or miniseries. Yes. So she's a reader herself and she understands that, you know, that transition, that adaptation has to work. So I think she brings a sensitivity to it. Absolutely. And, um, Nick Hornby was the the screenwriter who adapted right. Wild into the movie script, and he is an author himself. Right. So I think it was a, probably a really good choice 
for him to do this mm-hmm. um, work because he under he too understands as an author how you you know how you can condense right um, a book into a two hour like you said a two hour movie and bring the so, right things out and yeah. which characters to kind of do away with which not I should point out yeah. Michael Ondaatje was really involved in the movie version of the English Patient so maybe that's some of the successful formula for a good book to movie is the yeah. author participation I think so although I have heard some well I think it was Kevin Wilson who we talked mm. about nothing to see the author of nothing to see here right. in our last episode he had one of his books turned into a movie and he he said in an interview he wanted nothing to do with with that and he <laughs> it's yours. he just didn't care you know it was like here the book is the book the movie's the movie and um, well, probably the most famous story along those lines is Mary Poppins and the author yes. of Mary Poppins, who is v- very, Travers. very yes. resistant and then very persnickety about how Disney turned her books yes. into a movie. And they, they made a movie about that whole process, right. Saving Mr. Banks, exactly. which is a great, a great movie, too. But, um, you know, I think I'm always of the mindset that the book is going to be better than the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, here... For me, the two books that I picked that that really wasn't necessarily true. I found the movies to be just as good as the mm-hmm. books, but I always prefer to read a book. That's just me. I do too, and I think I probably make more time to to read a book than than see a movie. Although it's nice seeing a good cinema cinematic story in yes. a theater. It's like a special event, and when they really do that adaptation well. It's cool. I think I yeah. think your books are great. Just to, for our listeners, a few to pay attention to in this year, 2020, you yeah. know, um, Jack London's uh, Call of the Wild is coming out with Harrison Ford and a dog that seems to be computer generated. So I'm not sure how well that's going to be. Mm. David Copperfield by Charles Dickens is coming out with Dev Patel, the Indian actor in the lead role. Um, a couple that I'm in really excited about is an ad- adaptation of Henry James' Turn of the Screw, which is a Love great that story. kind of ghosty story. Yeah. And H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man um, is also being made into a movie with Elizabeth Moss from The Handmaid's oh, Tale. Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale. Tale. Is, and has that been made into a movie before? It has. I think it's yeah. a classic. I, I just think it's like one of those classic universal. Remember the, the wrapping and yep. everything of The Invisible yep. Man and wearing a suit and a hat and all that kind of stuff. I kind of like that. There's other stuff. Disney's got Artemis Fowl coming out and one of the more recent thriller novels that was popular, A Woman in the Window, is coming out with Amy Adams. Yeah, that's... I'm sure that's going to be a blockbuster. So no shortage. Nope, nope. lots Lots of choices out there. So listeners... Let us know. What do you... We're going to post this on our Instagram. So let us know what you think. Do you like reading the book or seeing the movie better? Which yeah. is your choice. So or send us which ones us you like. Hit us up on Instagram and yeah. let us know what you think. In the meantime, go browse your shelves or browse your movie library and start putting those titles together and take a breath. We'll be right back. You're dialed in to Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, Adventure, Books and conversations from 11,000 feet, originating from the slopes of Mammoth Mountain in Mono County, California. You can find us at SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. Just make sure you find us. 
So welcome back, listeners. We're at the C part of our com- uh, podcast. Yes, conversation. conversation. I wanted to jump on that word. It's one of our favorite parts of the podcast. Yes. I enjoy um, meeting the various people that we've brought on. And today we're really excited to have um, a, a, a well-known local author. A and celebrity. A celebrity <laughs> of the Eastern Sierra and the, and the 395 Corridor. The um, author and um, broadcaster himself through Sierra Wave. David Woodruff. Uh, welcome, Dave. David. Well, thank you so much for having me on the program today. I, I am honored to be here. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, we're, we're thrilled to have you and um, get to pick your brain a little bit and hear all your stories. So, so uh, listeners, for those of you who may not be familiar with um, the Woodruff's work, uh, David has written a number of books, six books around the Eastern Sierra and, and 395. You can find them in bookstores and libraries around. The most recent ones are in the Tales Along the El Camino Sierra series, um, where it's historical um, uh, snippets and stories from along the Eastern Sierra and, and 395. Also, you can find him on YouTube and Facebook. I had the pleasure of meeting him in person when you, David, you did kindly did a presentation at the Bridgeport Library a few months back. Um, and uh, I just love this stuff. So we're really excited that you could join us today. And, um, you know, we kind of start these conversations off with a really broad question, which is, uh, what's your background? How did you end up doing this? <laughs> <laughs> well... Well, history is my passion in life. I guess I could trace it back to when I was in high school. We made a cross-country trip back to Washington, D.C. with the family. And I'll tell you, Christopher, to, to stand at places like uh, Jamestown and think about the first English settlement in the Americas and Yorktown, right. where Cornwallis surrendered to Washington, and just being in the Smithsonian and seeing these incredible things of history that I've read about in my history classes up till that time, it really struck some kind of nerve in me. I came back and finished high school and went into college. And when I started college, I chose history as my major, not because I had any plan to be a historian or use it in any way. It just was something that I found (laughs) really, really interesting. I graduated from college, went on into the work world, and I never used my history degree at all, at least at first. Um, hmm. We and When Gail and I turned 40 in our early 1990s, we fulfilled a lifelong dream and we started working winter seasons in Death Valley National Park. We worked, wow. we worked for Furnace oh. Creek Resort. We weren't with the park service there. And my primary job was in food and beverage. But early on, I, I had the wonderful opportunity to work as a part-time tour guide there in Death Valley, giving history and and, uh, geography tours of Death Valley. And so through that, I started to learn a lot about the history of Death Valley. And it really piqued my interest again. It became almost a passion as we learned more and more and started doing research with the Park Service archives, the the Borax company that built the hotels there. They invited us down to their archives in Southern California, and we got to do research down there. So that all came about, and before I knew it, I also was the Furnace Creek Resorts historian. (laughs) A a wealth of uh, information and photographs and oral histories all came our direction. Uh, In addition to working in food and beverage, I started doing history presentations for guests that would come to Death Valley about the wonderful 
deep and rich history that has happened there. And so I really became thoroughly immersed and involved in history as well. I even wrote a few small booklets on history for the resort also. So that really got me started. I retired from Furnace Creek. We moved to Independence. We used to live in um, Mono City in the summer while in Death Valley. When we retired, we moved to Independence, and I became immediately involved in the Eastern California Museum in Independence there, which, for those of you that have never been there, uh, it's an incredible treasure we have here in the Eastern Sierras. I'm not an expert on this, but I'm going to go out and say I think it's one of the finest small-town museums to be found anywhere. So through my involvement there at the museum, or at least with the friends of the Eastern California Museum, I now had easy access to their wonderful collection of archives and photographs. Uh, my passion in history transferred just fine over to Eastern Sierra and Owens Valley, and I just became more and more involved in it. I started to do history presentations in Independence and Bishop and even in Mammoth Lakes through the friends and through other organizations as well. And our collection of history that we had on, on a personal note was enormous. And I just thought, you know, if uh, I like to talk about history and share that with other people and there seems to be an interest in it, I might as well uh, do something more formal in regards to putting it in book form. So we started to write books. And our first book was on the histories of Death Valley and Furnace Creek Resort. Mm -hmm. And shortly after that, we started to write history about things going on in the Eastern Sierra. So that's my long story that's still pretty long, how I got involved <laughs> in regional history. But it's just something I find, and along with my wife, Gail, who is my partner in all these projects, we just find it fascinating and interesting. And uh, we just feel very fortunate to live in a place whose history is so rich, rich and deep as it is here and have people that seem to be interested in it to share it with. Well, I think there are a lot of people that have a, just as deep an interest um, in the topics that you cover in your books. And if you wouldn't mind segueing a little bit into the tales of the El Camino Sierra Facebook page um, that you curate, and if you can maybe describe for us, how do you, given the rich history that we have here, how do you choose what you put on the website? And it is all fascinating. <laughs> well, Stacey, we, we, we try not to, and we're not following through, I guess, every time on this, but we try to choose history topics that we feel are, are not well covered, that, not, that might be new to people and that perhaps they haven't heard of before. We also find it particularly attractive and appealing if they're not only interesting, but if there's a bit of an amusing antidote to the story as well. So that's our general drift as far as trying to find things. And then in addition to that, I, I think about this from time to time. Since Gail's and my background is in tourism, uh, from our history in Death Valley, not to mention I worked in Yosemite National Park during my summers while I was in college. So we, we both have a, a background in hospitality business and tourism and all that. So as we look for our stories and do reference sourcing for our stories as well. We always kind of seem to be drifting towards people that have a background in tourism and history as well. And, and let's face it, the Eastern Sierras is, is heavy on tourism, so it's oh, not yeah. very hard to find those particular topics. But 
that's kind of where we are at trying to find our stories that we go on. But obviously we find things that don't have anything to do with history and tourism as well, but they might have a bit of a interesting or amusing part to be told also. So we'll, we'll choose those, not just for the Facebook post, but for our stories in, in our books as well. So, you know, I, uh, one quick point, one of the things I love about the Eastern Sierra and Stacy, you and I were kind of chatting about this yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's a vast place of yes. contrasts. Listeners yeah. who are listen to us regularly will know that the last episode of the podcast, you heard the Bodie Ranger Jackson, who overwinters in the right. coldest place in the United States. And David, you're talked about spending winters in the hottest place on the <laughs> planet. Furnace Creek is below sea level, right? Uh, well, yes, it is. Death Valley and the, and, and the resort itself there at the ranch is indeed below sea level. And, and for us on the Eastern Sierra, uh, it's all kind of our neighbors. The Death right. Valley is a three-hour drive south of Mammoth from where we are today, and Bodie is an hour and a half drive north. But it's all kind of the same. It's all our neighborhood. It's, it's all our neighborhood. <laughs> and I like the progression you described, David, um, moving kind of slightly further north and further north and further further north. How did you um, come up with the idea of contextualizing these history snippets along the highway itself, 395? Oh, Christopher, that was partly a marketing effort as well. I, I as far okay. as for once we got involved in thinking we wanted to write these little tales of Eastern Sierra history in short, easy to read form, and as we're looking for a title for the book, um, my good friend and fellow historian Ted Williams, who lives down in Bishop, brilliant man, great historian. Mm-hmm. He wrote a wonderful article back in 2014 called The Bumpy Road to El Camino Sierra. And it was about uh, how El Camino Sierra, which was the original name given to Highway 395. Uh, we don't have enough time to go all the way into that history. But it was it was part of a marketing effort for the folks in the Eastern Sierra to get state money to build highways in the Eastern Sierra. So they thought mm-hmm. they'd come up with a a good marketing sounding name. They embellished off the folks that were already going with El Camino Real near the coast. And lo and behold, here comes the name El Camino Sierra. So it was an interesting story. And I really liked the romantic, sentimental sounding name of El Camino Sierra. And since our stories were going to be Eastern Sierra base up and down the Highway 395 corridor, I mean, geographically, the area is fairly limited because the mountains are on both sides of the highway. <laughs> All the history happened there. So we, we chose to go out along with the El Camino Sierra name just because it had a nice, fun, attracting ring to it. And uh, and that was, I guess, how we, we chose that name to go along with our books. It's a great, it's a great it name. Is. It's really um, provocative and makes you want to go and keep keep reading everything you post. It's so diverse <laughs> in the little vignettes and history um, do people nuggets s- that you give. It's so great. Do people send you, you have, you're pretty well known now. So do people send you ideas or send you photographs or send you stories? Yes, we do. Uh, yes, they have. We, we obviously do a lot of research, especially at the Eastern California Museum, but at also a number of other these great museums and historical societies that we have here in the Eastern Sierra from the 
Southern Mono there at the Hayden Cabin to the mm-hmm. Mono County Museum there in Bridgeport, Mono Basin and Levining. All these places have been, we're fortunate as a community to have had so many of these folks that have come before us to be around to preserve it. And yes, I I was in delivering our books to uh, a restaurant in Lone Pine one day. And of course, talking to the manager there about how many more should I bring in and all that. One of the customers sitting there at the table noticed that it was I was doing something with these books that are for sale there. And he she came up and asked me after I was done with the manager, are you the guy that writes these books? And I said, yes. And she told and shared this wonderful story about Ann Brigman, who was a nature photographer in the eastern Sierra. She didn't live here, but she did a lot of her work here. But anyway, she turned me on to this great story that I never even heard of before. And that's only one of a couple of cases that that's happened. People write us on our Facebook page and make suggestions. So uh, if I can make a plea on your listening audience here, if anyone has a, a, a idea or a suggestion for another short, interesting, lesser-known story of Eastern Sierra history that they think might work well, by all means, please get in touch with us. Absolutely. Listeners, you're, <laughs> you're you're, the challenge is, is there. <laughs> well, what I, one of the things I... I think that it appeals to people and it certainly appeals to me is, you know, my, my family hasn't been here generations and generations, but we were here, um, at least back through my grandfather, my grandfather, when he was first married was justice of the peace in a little town called Atolia on 395, which no longer exists. And they moved to Lone Pine during the war. And he was just a font of stories, like going over to their house after church, you just kind of sat on the floor and you listen to granddad tell stories. And so reading these books is kind of like you know, it brings up that kind of nostalgic feeling about, you know, like little family stories and tidbits of the history that you would never know otherwise. I, I think history has a magical way of plying on the emotional strings of, of many of us, whether it's a childhood memory that we have of a trip that we particularly took or a wonderful memory that we shared with a spouse that has a historical tie to it as well. It's, it's delightful, I think, that thread of history that can pull back people to situations or events that they've had in their past and generate a bit of nostalgic and, and sentimental value to it as well and and we write our books thinking along that line as we try to find what's interesting for the people to read so your your most recent books are tales along the el camino sierra series you've written two of those are you planning uh, is there a third in the works are you working on something else now there is a third in the works Uh, while waiting for us to get together this morning stacy i was doing a little editing on book three right now. We're probably (laughs) about 20 to 25% um, through with this book as well. And if everything goes well, please keep your fingers crossed for us. We we hope to have book three out by about the beginning of uh, summer. Well, we're looking forward to it. (laughs) David, are there a couple, you know, one or two or three stories that are related to the Mono County area that you could share with us? Um, Yes, I... As I mentioned earlier, I have a very fondness for people that were involved in in the hospitality tourism business. We call them the pioneers of hospitality. And to say, because our 
economy is so tourism-based in the eastern Sierras. Mm-hmm. There have been many. Uh, I, in, in particular, I, I really, really like uh, Nellie Bly Baker, who was the, uh, she's actually a Hollywood actress that got her start working with Charlie Chaplin. And she ended up coming up to the Eastern Sierra on a, on a um, movie set and just loved the area, ended up retiring <laughs> from the movies. And in 1939, she came up, she decided Lundy Canyon there near Mono Lake was the right place to be. She took apart some old mining cabins, built herself a small resort there called Happy Ending, and just one very tough, determined, and independent woman. Right. She became the very first female in the California that held a hunting and fishing license. In other words, she'd lead men up into the backcountry and show them where to catch the fish or, <laughs> or shoot the deer. And just her independence was just incredible. And I just so admired that. Uh, and along with uh, Nellie, there was Nan and her husband, Max, Sis Chank. They moved up to the Eastern Sierra as just young kids in the mid 1930s. They thought, well, Imagine this. Back in those days, they thought Los Angeles was too crowded. So they (laughs) they get away to the eastern Sierras. They would vacation there. They liked it. They moved up there with just pennies in their pockets. They got jobs. They wintered through the winters, taking care of cabins up in the Mammoth Lakes Basin. They befriended a Mammoth Lakes legend and dogs. But musher Tex Cushion as well, and they just became ex- expert skiers, big parts of their community. Nan drove a, a bus from Manzanar to Reno three days a week during the winter mm. and ended up putting in a Long Valley resort there in Long Valley and made a go of that for a good number of years. Just people that took these risks, they literally risked everything in their lives to come and, and try and experiment with hospitality. I, I just... Love those stories, and I love talking about them, and I love sharing them as well. And then, I guess if I may, right there in in the town of Mammoth Lakes, Emmett Hayden. Here's this gentleman that's a map maker in Glendale, comes to Mammoth, likes fishing, likes the area, likes getting away from the city along with uh, his wife. And so in the 1920s, he builds himself one of the first Forest Service summer track homes there in Mammoth Lakes. Mm. And then he starts inviting friends to come up and they all go fishing together and they ask him, well, where should I go? So Emmett will take him there. And plus he realizes that there's no decent maps of the area. And since that's his background, he starts making maps so people can find the places to go and see and visit. And he actually develops a bit of a hunting and tour guide business himself up there. Uh, It's just these great stories of people that, not only risked everything, but did a lot to help expose other people to the wonders and magic that we all call the Eastern Sierras. That's great. I love that. Now, was really quickly, is that Hayden the same as Hayden Cabin? Is that- it is. So, uh, so his cabin is what has become the Hayden Cabin, which, of course, is the Southern Mono Historical mm-hmm. Society's museum there, uh, right alongside the creek and Mammoth. Just a delightful treasure in that small town. But yes, that's where the Hayden cabin came from. He actually built a couple of cabins along the creek there, some of which are now gone or torn down or had been moved someplace else. But he would um, bring some of his fishing friends and trips, er, friends up to go on these trips. And that's some of them would stay in some of the other cabins near where the Hayden cabin is currently. And there's a, 
and and you can also still go see Nellie Bly Baker's cabin, the the upside down cabin in Levining, right? Correct. That um, Christopher was actually built after she was done with her Lundy Lake Resort, which was called Happy Landing, but that's what's become Lundy Lake Resort. She retired at sixty, moved on into Levining, and well, actually close to Levining, and. As an interest, she built that upside-down house. It was part of a childhood memory or a childhood uh, tale that was told to her by her mother, I guess. And she came across a house one time on one of her travels up Lundy Canyon that had one of the old mining shacks that had fallen off apparently in an avalanche, did not get demolished, was apparently mostly intact. Mm. And and she created her upside-down house uh, (laughs) here, uh, Levining, in the early 1950s. One of the things I really enjoy, I I read, and it's only one person's account of it, but in the early 50s, her upside-down house was attributed to being one of the primary tourist attractions in all of Bono County. And uh, I just think, wow, uh, in a place with the incredible scenery and all the other things there are to see, that Nellie's house was one of the most popular things in the early 1950s. Well, Dave, um, you mentioned reading, and I I don't know how you have time given all the research that you that you do. Uh, but something we always ask our guests is, uh, what what are you reading now? So, on my nightstand right now for my reading material is a book called William Mulholland and the Rise of Los Angeles. It was written by Mulholland's granddaughter, Catherine Mulholland, and it's. Let me be honest, it's partly for reference because I find the Los Angeles aqueduct, needless to say, a very important part of Eastern Sierra history. And I have some projects maybe down in the future I want to do in regards to that. So I've read already a lot about the L.A. aqueduct and its history, but this is very interesting to read it from his granddaughter's point of view because, needless to say, she's somewhat sympathetic for her granddaughter. In it, and and every every tale has two sides to it, and it's interesting to be reading a little bit more about it from that side. So I, I have that book on my nightstand right now, and probably for the fifteenth or twentieth time in my life on this planet, I'm also reading Mary Austin's The Land of Little Rain. I it's I find her work so inspiring. I wish I could write more like that because her her command of the English vocabulary is just stellar. I love people like her and like John Muir as well, who literally had the ability to paint a mental picture in people's minds so clearly. And I just love reading her work as she talks about the the streets of the Sierras, which are the canyons and trails that go up into them. And it's just these places that I've been before, but can feel them by her magic of words. I'm reading that again as well. Those are the two books I'm working on right now. And you you can find the Mary Austin book in all local bookstores mm -hmm. at the the museum, the Eastern Sierra Museums. You know, that's a really well-known local book as well to Mm -hmm. kind of introduce people to the Eastern Sierra and the Owens Valley. It's really well-written. Well, we'll put links in our show notes to both those books so our, our listeners could read them as well. I don't think anyone that loves the Eastern Sierras would be disappointing, probably in reading either one, especially The Land of Little Rain, if they haven't done so already. 
Yeah. And she's got a great backstory. So that title's on our list to talk about on the podcast someday. So we'll get to it. Um, David, how can our listeners find, find you, find your, your, uh, your resources and and get in contact with you if they need to. Okay. So, um, as you were kind enough to mention earlier, we have a very, very active Facebook page and it's the same title as our books. Christopher is called tales along El Camino Sierra. And on that, we usually publish about two times a week with a new history tale on it. We also have a YouTube channel by the same name called tales along El Camino Sierra. And right now we have 23 episodes. They're about four to five six minutes one of them i think is up to nine minutes and they too are they're like a slideshow presentation that we've put together on these eastern sierra history topics as well so both of those have our contact information i don't know if you want our email address right now as well we can put it up on our show page yeah okay it's yeah it's uh, el camino sierra 395 at gmail.com but those are two ways you can find us and uh we have a, a litany of more presentations, is history presentations. We're planning to make this summer as well. So keep a watch on uh, various newspaper and radio sites, and you'll probably see some of the history talks that we're going to give there also. Well, we appreciate you joining us today and all the information you've shared and um, we really appreciate your time and we can't wait for that next book to come out. <laughs> Thank you, Stacey. It, it truly has been my pleasure to not only join with you here today for a while, but to enjoy what you two are doing as well by uh, the podcast that you're doing. I think it's just a great thing. And you're a lot like those hospitality pioneers trying something new out there and risking things to do it. And, and good for you. I, I'm really enjoying those. And, <laughs> and thank you for so doing Well, thank you very much. We really appreciate it. And thank you, listeners, for joining us for another episode of Oxygen Starved Adventure Books and Conversations from 11,000 Feet. As always, we encourage you, if you're not already subscribing, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, your major podcast platforms. Rate us. Tell your friends about us. You can also find us on Instagram at o2starved.com. And, you know, we really encourage you to uh, engage with us there as well. So uh, have a wonderful day and thank you. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod in Competech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 License.